Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, Historic Christianity's Two Books Metaphor. We've returned to this topic from a couple of podcasts ago. And Ken, maybe you can give us a bit of a recap because we've had uh, a couple of podcasts uh, since then. This is a standalone podcast, but it does go with what uh, we started with. So maybe you can get us up to speed. Yes, Joe. Uh, you know, at Reasons to Believe, we kind of use this the, this phrase, the two books uh, revelation. It, it is, I think, right at the heart of what Reasons to Believe does as an apologetics organization. Uh, in fact, you know, we had a conference um, a few months ago where we talked about the two books. And uh, in the previous program, I talked a little bit about the biblical context for it, that there is general revelation and special revelation. I want to review that again a little bit. But what I'd like to do, uh, Joe and Dave, is I'd, I'd like to give you some of the historic comments and quotations through the centuries mm -hmm. of Christian thinkers that have identified these two books. So that'll be the focus of today's program. Wonderful. Okay. Well, you're always good about incorporating uh, Christian history, and I think that's one of the things a lot of people appreciate about uh, this podcast. So let's take it away. Well, again, as we think about those, the two books metaphor or two books analogy, uh, we're we're really in the biblical tradition. Um, Judaism and Christianity are revelatory religions. You know, Yahweh appears to uh, Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets of the Old Testament long before there is a Tanakh, which is the Hebrew word for the uh, Old Testament scriptures, long before they write anything down, they're having encounters with the Lord. And so uh, Judaism and Christianity are they are revelatory religions and they're bookish religions. Um, it's very interesting that when you compare Judaism and Christianity to the pagan religions, the pagan religions are really kind of temple-oriented religions. If you go back and study them, it's not like they have a book that they open up. You know, I, I think of the church that I attend, it's an Anglican church, and we use the Book of Common Prayer, but every week there are public readings from the Scriptures, an Old Testament reading, an epistle reading, um, and and then a gospel reading, and then the sermon would will expound. Uh, Christians are bookish people, and we get that from our our Jewish ancestors. Uh, and so God has a book that He is going to give us, and that's very distinct. I would say that uh, Islam incorporates some of that, but some other religions are quite different now. All of this is tied to the idea of revelation in Scripture. So when we think about revelation, of course, we think about the book of Revelation. But here I'm talking really more about the doctrine of revelation, that God has, he has initiated an unveiling or a self-disclosure. And he's done it in two ways, a general revelation that goes out to all people at all times everywhere. We call that a universal. It's general because everybody gets it. It's universal in nature. It comes in creation. Uh, 
Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It comes in our conscience, Romans 1 and 2. It comes in providence. In, in history, we see God's hand behind the world. That's general revelation. Everybody gets it. And because everybody gets it, we should expect that people who are not Jewish or Christian are still going to get some things right. I mean, even the pagans, uh, for example, let me use my field of philosophy. Plato and Aristotle are two of the absolute best philosophers who ever lived. In fact, we judge uh uh, everybody else by their brilliance. Well, uh, they were they didn't have a doctrine of sin, and um, they had things that were missing in their worldview, but they got a lot of things right. In fact, so much so that Plato and Aristotle are two people that lived 2,500 years ago, but you can quote them today and they're still relevant. It's an amazing thing. Now there's another kind of revelation called special revelation. That doesn't go out to everybody. That goes to the Jewish people. Why didn't the why didn't God choose the Chinese? Why did why didn't he choose uh, you know another group of people? Well, he chose to reveal himself to the Hebrews and then from the Hebrews to the world. What's interesting to me, Joe and Dave, is, uh, and, I, and I think that this is a difference between Christianity and Judaism. Christianity is a world faith. Uh, it goes out to, to all the world. Uh, the, the Jewish faith has, has always been uh, a, a bit selective. And so special revelation is a, is a unique gift. But it's ultimately intended to go out to the world, where we preach the gospel, where we tell people uh, uh, about uh, God. And, and of course, what's interesting to me apologetically is some of the uh, more academic atheist philosophers today, uh, they believe that God is hidden. Well, I think it's important to explain why the Bible is a revelatory book, why uh, Christianity believes revelation so important, because at the end of the day, there is this grand revelation that nobody ever expected, and that is that God has come in human flesh. J.I. Packer, uh, the great uh, Puritan theologian, Packer said that uh, the truth of the incarnation, God in the flesh, so second person of the Trinity, takes a human nature and becomes the God-man, the theanthropos. Uh, Packer says that's greater than any truth. That's greater than anything in fictional literature. And, and I want you to think about that for a moment. I want our listeners to think about that for a moment. You believe that God came to the earth in the person of Christ, uh, that he took a human nature, that he lived, that he, that he died on our behalf. Um, God has come looking for you. So is God hidden? How hidden is God when God has come in the form of of humanity to us. And, you know, that's something I remind myself of, not just at Christmas time, but I try to remind myself, Ken, you believe this. 
you know, maybe you're going through a difficult time of suffering. Maybe you feel lonely. The pandemic, Joe and Dave, have, have created an epidemic of loneliness. Well, what, what helps me is to remind myself of that great biblical truth. You know, open up, open up to the Gospel of Mark. It's the it's the shortest of the Gospels. Um, read through it. Who who is this man? Who is this Galilean? Who is this man from Nazareth? What does he claim? What does he claim to? Who does he claim to be? What does he claim his mission? This is all that revelation that God has come looking for us. And during the pandemic, uh, before the pandemic, some of the people who work in the field of mental health have said that uh, maybe 20% of the people in America were looking for some help with regard to mental health, maybe counseling, uh, medication. Uh, some people have said that that's doubled, 40%. Wow. Well, um, you know, uh, there are times where any of us can feel isolated, can feel alone. But what I try to remind myself is God's come looking for me. Mm -hmm. And he, he, I am never alone. He is always with me. So those are some things I, I hope uh, that people will think about when Joe and Dave, when they think about Revelation. All right. Very good. So uh, for people who uh, are not sure, again, if, if there's uh, like an overlap uh, between general and special revelation, uh, what, uh, what, in addition to giving uh, his word to the Hebrews, what else might be special revelation, or is that it, or how do we look at special revelation? Yeah, so it's important to think uh, immediately when we think about biblical revelation, we think of our Bible sitting mm -hmm. on our desk, but God was having personal encounters with Hebrews and Jewish people long before it was recorded. So the great the great experiences of Abraham and Moses. I think of Moses, right? The the uh, leading the Jewish people out of uh, bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, I think of the giving of the law. It's important to think of the experiences of God have now been what we might say inscripturated. And so these books are this enduring revelation from God. And as we think about Christianity, the Bible is the fully inspired Word of God. It, it, is, uh, a, it is a record given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the branches of Christendom have some division about the authority of Scripture in relationship to church tradition and issues like that. But Scripture is uh, the Bible, the Old and New Testament together. That there's nothing, there's nothing that compares to that. I, I wonder, Joe and Dave, if my Catholic and Orthodox friends would agree with me that the Bible has no peer. Even if the Catholic Church says you need a magisterium to interpret tradition in Scripture, or or even if you're an Orthodox and you put tradition church tradition on one side and scripture on the other. I, I wonder if all of Christendom would agree that that scripture itself has no peer. Its inspiration is unique. But remember, 
it is recording things that happened even before the text was printed, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. So does that make uh, special revelation a part of general revelation in this respect? Uh, Christ was revealed, but now and, and all the things you talked about in the Old Testament. But now we have a, a book uh, that captures all that. So paper and, and books and those things are part of our world today. So is 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 that kind of a connection, a, a direct relation, a special relation to in general? I think I think so. I think we should see them together. Uh, obviously, the Book of Nature is a figurative book. It's like an analogy. It's not a literal book. It doesn't have spine and pages, but there's the created world. We're made in the image of God. We have a conscience. We see the heavens. Uh, you know, look at the stars. We, we, we hear uh, and we're aware that God is communicating. Well, that, that's the book of nature, but we also have the literal book of Scripture. It's God's written word. It's the special revelation. And so we now see those together. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it's possible. And and I, I, I think there are times where uh, our knowledge of the natural world has helped us to understand better Scripture. Mm -hmm. So we can see them together. And uh, uh, the, the idea behind it, Joe, is that God is the author of both books. Hmm. So if they're interpreted properly, they're going to cohere. Now, they can be misinterpreted. And, and I'm not saying it's always easy to know the right interpretation of the book of nature, but quite frankly, there are times where knowing the right interpretation of Scripture takes work as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I have a couple of comments um this this thing you just mentioned that that there's a harmony between the two books that's a tremendous source of security and and uh you know uh, i can't think of the right word to use here but knowing that there that any new discovery it it sort of removes any fear of making new discoveries of what science may discover or yeah. theologians may may claim uh that ultimately those two books are going to agree with one another yeah and that i don't have to fear any misinterpretations that eventually they're going to be resolved they're either going to be rejected or or acknowledged as not being correct and there there's a, a security in that yeah mm -hmm. Uh, there's a, another comment I'd like to make, and that is uh, you've you've made these points in the past, Ken, and that is that the, um, uh, the the image of God in human beings is also a part of general revelation. And yeah. so by looking just at humanity, looking at our psychology, looking at our our inner characteristics, the the qualities and the attributes that we have we learn about god so that there's and then a third thing is that um there is a um hiddenness that you make mention of but i've liked the point that you've made in the past and that is the problem isn't that god is hidden the problem is that men are blind yeah 
Those are terrific points, Dave. Um, let me just react to them because I'm, I think they're such fine points. One, one of the things that I love about uh, being a Christian is that when I encounter truth, it 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 brings me closer to the God of truth. Amen. Uh, you know, as a philosopher, as a scientist, uh, you know, J Joe, I think of uh, writing and literacy. Uh, words that the closer we we get to truth, the closer we get to the God that's on the other side of that. That was very meaningful to me when I studied philosophy. I thought, well, you know, is philosophy going to take me away? Uh, what I what I realize is that there are truths in philosophy. There are truths in logic. There's truth in science. In mathematics, brings me brings me closer to God. And I and I really like your idea. You know, when we encounter other people, we're encountering people who are made in the image of God. Now that that image been has been tarnished. It's been effaced, but it's not been erased. And therefore, when we encounter other people, we we are that's a revelation. Uh, that that's that's a that's an encounter, and it's very important, Dave. Uh, your third point there is very important as well. You know, I, I think of this idea. I, I wrote an article on the hiddenness of God, and I talk about a pitcher catcher relationship. Uh, in my younger days, I played a little bit of baseball, and I learned how to catch. And I realized that being a catcher is, uh, it's not a passive position. You're working in conjunction with that pitcher. You're working together. Well, uh, Revelation, uh, you know, the atheist would say there's been a catastrophic uh, sender failure. God, if God's out there, he hasn't done his job. That's what Bertrand Russell was, says on Judgment Day. Bertrand Russell's going to say, not enough evidence, God, you didn't do it. Of course, the, the biblical position is the opposite. It's been a catastrophic re receiver failure where people suppress. And, and I think that's one of the points that I would make is that, that sin is diabolical. Uh, you know, sin is missing the mark. Sin is breaking the commandments. That's the central definition in Scripture. But the diabolical thing about sin is it, it blinds you. You mm. don't even know you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Mm. And and with sin having that big domain, then grace has to be even greater, the grace of God coming into our lives. And I think before we, you know, we judge non-Christians, we should appreciate how much God has done to reveal himself to us. Uh, to speak to our hearts uh, and to our minds, but Dave, those are those are terrific points. Now, I want to say something about these two books, and then give you some uh, quotations uh, because I want you to see how rich this two books metaphor has been in church history. But but here is a, a very distinguished scientist and theologian, Alistair McGrath. He says, this metaphor, the two books, invites us to see God as the author or creator of two distinct yet related books, the natural world and the Bible, and thus to image nature as a readable text that requires interpretation in a manner comparable to the Christian interpretation of the Bible. Now, what, what's interesting about that 
If you go to Psalm 19, it, it says that God has revealed words, that that God has given us kind of bookish elements. You know, the, there are no place where these words are not seen. There's nobody who doesn't really kind of read this. So the two books idea didn't begin with St. Augustine. It didn't begin with John Calvin. It, it didn't begin with Basil of Caesarea. The two books is a biblical idea that, that God has revealed himself in a book-like reality called nature. And then he has also revealed him personally, and those personal uh, revelations have been inscripturated. So we have these two books, and I and I love that. I love it apologetics because apologetically because what we're what we're essentially told here is that nature is like a book. We can read it. We can understand it. We can study it. It it has an intelligibility, and and God has given us all of the qualities and characteristics we need to do science you know, to, to engage in these particular disciplines. Now, let me introduce this idea of the two books in church history. Um, and I love to, I love to encourage people to study church history. Um, if I could critique my evangelical tradition, I would say one critique I have is that maybe the Catholics and the Orthodox, they give church history a greater emphasis. I like to encourage my evangelical friends, and I consider myself an evangelical. I like to say church history doesn't belong exclusively to the Catholic Church or to the Orthodox Church. Church history is, is really a phenomenon that belongs to all Christians. Now, let me give you a, a, a passage here from the Catholic astronomer and theologian Giuseppe Tanzella Nitti, um, uh, uh, Giuseppe is the uh, Italian word, if I'm correct here, and I think I am, for Joseph. So, Joe, if you were living in Italy, they'd call you Giuseppe. Mm -hmm. uh, what wonderful. Anyway, uh, Father uh, Tanzella Nitti, he says this, he says, the number of authors who have spoken of the book of nature is very high. It seems that the attitude of looking at nature as if it were a book first began to be recorded clearly in the early Christian literature. Now, um, I think that this is probably true even prior to some of the people that I'm going to give you. But let me give you a quotation from Basil of Caesarea. His dates are 329 to 379. And I want to tell you a little bit about Basil. Basil is, is part of the three Cappadocian fathers. They're intellectual heavyweights. Uh, this, this would be Basil uh, and the Gregories, the Gregory of Nyssa, the the these are these are really um, the intellectual equals of of Augustine and Jerome in in the Eastern Church, and the two Gregories are brothers. So th this this is a family. Uh, Basil of Caesarea is one of the most 
productive writers uh, in Greek. So this is the Greek church. Uh, this is the Eastern church. And here's what Basil says. Again, his dates are 329 to 379. He says, we were made in the image and likeness of our creator, endowed with intelligence endowed with intellect and reason so that our nature was complete and we could know God. In this way, continuously contemplating the beauty of the creatures through them as if they were letters and words, we could read God's wisdom and providence over all of them. Again, Basil is connecting to this idea that we can look at nature and we can see it as letters and words. He's he's really quoting Psalm 19 here. He's he's implying that idea. So this is the fourth century. This is in the Eastern Church. And Basil, a Greek father, is telling us that that nature has a language. I mean, a couple hundred years, the last couple hundred years, science tells us, uh, uh, Einstein used to repeat this, that the language of the universe is mathematics. Well, that's, I think that's deeply rooted in this idea. You know, why did science get going in Christian Europe about 1650? Because Christianity had this idea that nature is like a book. You can study it. It isn't something to be feared. You don't have to placate the deities. You can study nature because it's revealed in words. It's revealed in letters. It's revealed in concepts we call mathematics. And so th this is another reason why we do all of this, guys, is we need to communicate to people that... Um, Christianity has been a good thing for the Western world. Christianity has been really good. It, it's it's supported literature. It's supported uh, political and economic theories. It has supported uh, ment the the health areas of life, hospitals, but but it's also buttressed science. Because humans are made in the image of God, and because the world is intelligible, we can do science. Um, that's that's very different in Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, I don't know that naturalism would would tell you that. Where's the mind behind everything? So it's. I think that this is very important, and I think it's very important for people to appreciate that this is really. This is really the bread and butter behind reasons to believe that there are these two books. They're authored by the same God. We may have to wrestle with the books. We may have differing interpretations, but God's revealed them in, in that way. Mm -hmm. Now, another, uh, an equal to Basil in the West, of course, would be St. Augustine. His dates are 354 to 430. Um one of the passages about the two books is found in his book, The Confessions. Uh, in book 13, section 18, he says this, In your great wisdom, you who are gods, speak to us of these things in your book, the firmament, the sky, right? A firmament would be the sky, the firmament made by you. So again, the idea here in Augustine is there is the book of Scripture, but there's also the book of nature. 
it it doesn't have pages it doesn't have a spine but it's intelligible and uh because of the imago day you can capture some of that now here's another passage from saint augustine uh this is from his exposition on the psalms but by the way many of the great christian leaders i'm thinking now of not only augustine but i'm thinking of luther and calvin two of the two of the fathers of protestantism if you will uh all of them their favorite old testament book was the psalms uh that's that's an interesting thing i think that that god revealing himself in poetry god revealing himself in the wisdom literature uh, you know, J.I. Packer, um, you know, talked about the different uh, books of the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and and uh, Packer made the point that, you know, the, this wisdom literature that was given to the Hebrews, it teaches us how to live, it teaches us how to behave, it teaches us very things to, to live out our faith. Uh, and some of the great creation passages are not merely in Genesis, they're also in, in the Psalms. Uh, well, again, here's Augustine. He says, it is the divine page that you must listen to. It is the book of the universe that you must observe. The pages of scripture can only be read by those who know how to read and write, while everyone, even the illiterate, can read the book of the universe. Mm -hmm. Well, again, two books, two mm -hmm. books, right? Here's one more uh, from Augustine on the Trinity. Um, he says, I will not be idle in seeking out the substance of God, either through his scriptures or his creatures, for both these are offered us for our observation and scrutiny in order that in them he may be sought, he may be loved who inspired the one and created the other. Two books. He inspired the one, the book. He created the other, the book of the book of nature. Now, lest you think that this is uh this is merely a Catholic or an Orthodox approach, maybe the maybe the clearest presentation of this uh, comes in the Belgic Confession, a Reformed Confession of 1561. This, of course, would be, you, you think of the different Protestant traditions, you have the Lutherans, who were the first Protestants, but then you have uh, Reformed, uh, you have you have the Anglicans, and so this would be the magisterial reformers. Well, in the Belgic Confession, Article 2, uh, under the designation, we know him by two means, the Belgic Confession says, first, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, uh, the book of nature. Then the Belgic Confession goes on. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. I remember when I first came to Reasons to Believe, um, 
Dr. Hugh Ross used to say that the book of nature uh, is the 67th book of the Bible. Uh, and he got a lot of pushback, by the way, on that, particularly from young earthers. And I, I, I said, Hugh, I think there's a better way of making your point there. Instead of saying that the Bible is the 67th book, I think it's better yeah. to tie it into church history that it's a, that it's another book entirely, the two books, because because nature is a it is book like. But it's not the same thing as a book. It it has it has a dynamic to it, and and that resonated with Hugh. And he very commonly now talks uh, uh, about the the two books. Now, I want to pause just for a second because where I want to go next is I want to give you some of the quotations from some of the great scientists from the 16th and 17th centuries. But I want to pause because I, I want to see if uh, Dave or Joe, if you have a comment or a question at this point. Uh, nothing at this point. I made yeah. my points a little earlier. <laughs> yeah, tracking with you. I appreciate it, Ken. Okay. Well, uh, later during the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries, Christian forefathers of science. So these are scientists. By the way, these are scientists who knew a lot of Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, what's amazing about some of the early scientists of the 16th and 17th centuries, they were not just sophisticated in their particular scientific discipline. They had a, a lot of awareness of Christian theology, Christian uh, philosophical ideas. These are the forefathers uh, of the two books. And the first one is Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon is a philosopher. Uh, his dates are 1561 to 1626. And he says, he famously speaks of, quote, the book of God's works and the book of God's word in his Advancement of Learning in 1605. The book of God's works, that's the book of nature, that's the natural world, and then the book of God's word, his revelatory Bible, right? So, so here's Francis Bacon, who uh, plays a very significant role in, in the development of science. He's, he's a key, he's one of the founding fathers of the scientific enterprise, and he readily puts them in the two books context. The book of God's works, the book of God's word, they're not, they're not exactly the same. They are different, but they are a figurative book, and a, and a literal book. That comes from uh, one of the great um, scientists, philosophers, one of the one of the great advancers of, of science. My second one is Galileo Galilei. This is uh, the great Galileo, of course. Unfortunately, most people, either atheist or Christian, just know about Galileo in terms of him getting into trouble with the Catholic Church. Uh, but the the reality, he was he was a great astronomer. He was right at the forefront of the development of of astronomy. and he was a very sophisticated uh, 
uh, Christian thinker. His dates are 1564 to 1642. He says this, philosophy, uh, I think we could we could say natural philosophy, which means the natural world, if you will. Philosophy or natural philosophy is written in this grand book. I mean the universe, which stands continually open to our gaze, but it cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and interpret the characters in which it is written. Sometimes some atheists, not all atheists, but some atheists, some atheists on Twitter, for example, they like to say that Christians are not very intelligent. Christians are, they don't know their science. Christians don't, aren't scholarly people. But, but church history um, refutes that idea. Here is Galileo, one of the most important persons in the history of Western civilization, who is a founder, one of the persons who brings and puts astronomy on the, on the map, but he's also deeply uh, religious. And, and so the Galileo controversy, I think, is, is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. Now, here's another quotation by Sir Thomas Brown. Um, his dates are 1605 to, to 1682. And notice what he says. He says, there are two books from whence I collect my divinity. Besides that written one of God, another of his servant nature, that universe and public manuscript that, lie, that lies expanded or expand unto the eyes of all those that never those that never saw him in the one have discovered him in the other so so you got the book of nature and the and the book of scripture and brown says that those who never saw him in the one the book of scripture have discovered him in the other you know one of the points that paul the apostle makes in his early writing of the book of Romans is that the book of nature holds us accountable to God. Paul says, we see, understand, and we know what John Calvin would call a sense of the divine census divinitatis. We, we have accountability. Um, in our sinful state, we don't want to be accountable. I think that's just a natural principle. When you sin, you don't want to be accountable. You want to run from accountability. Um, but the re the reality is that people have have seen evidence of God in in the book of nature. Now, here's another one from another great distinguished scientist. Uh, this is Robert Boyle, um, really one of the founding members of chemistry here. Uh, so we're talking about you know, some of the people who put these scientific disciplines on the map, if you will. Robert Boyle's dates are 1627 to 1691. He writes this. Uh, he says, the two great books of nature and of scripture have the same author, so the latter does not hinder at all an inquisitive man's delight in the study of the former. Two books, 
book of scripture, the book of nature. God's the author of both. God is the God of truth. All truth is God's truth. Uh, by the way, I would I would say there are some young earth authors today who denied the two books idea. Um, I think the problem with that is not just in Christian history, it's also looking at scripture uh, itself. But, but notice that um, the two books is something that motivated the development of science. Uh, because I have the qualities and characteristics being made in the image of God, because God has created the world with namas laws and logos logic, I can track the intelligibility. It's a book, and books can be read. I can learn the vocabulary. I can learn to read that book. Uh, it's intelligible. Uh, as a response, again, to the atheists, atheism did not produce science. Science had a very deep religious biblical uh, focus, and uh, this is a challenging question. Had naturalism been the prevailing paradigm in, in the 1600s, would science have come to be? Well, I guess we'll never know, but I wonder. Uh, given the idea that these people thought, I can, I can bring glory to God by doing science. And I can do it because he is he is that intelligence uh, behind it. Joe and Dave, what do you think about some of those quotations? I think they're tremendous. You know, it's it's interesting. This is a slightly different context, but um, this idea that these men knew the scriptures and the scriptures greatly influenced the way that they observed the universe and understood it and enabled them to do science in a way that was revolutionary. I uh, was talking to my son, Tim, recently. And when Tim was in the university, he got both an engineering degree and he did a minor in English literature. Wow. And in the course of taking classes in English literature, he was way ahead of those who were specializing in this field, except, of course, for the professor, because he knew the Bible. Yeah. So much of the literature that they would read had allusions to Scripture. And because he knew the Bible, he understood what those allusions were. And the rest of the students in the class who didn't know the Bible were at a total loss. They had no understanding of what was being said. Well, it's a little different context, but it's it's the same kind of principle. Knowing yeah. God's word has tremendous benefits in every area of life. Well, you know, let, let's let's talk a little bit about what an education would include, um, you know, in the Old Testament. Um, you know, at the time of Jesus, it was expected that the rabbis would largely have the Old Testament mastered. Um, and, you know, the 613 laws, um, uh, you know, it was an oral tradition, and it was a memory tradition, and so they could cite very long passages because of that kind of thing. Sometimes I think in the modern world, we have too much access. I can, you know, I can just open up Google and do a search, and it'll bring up all these kinds of things. But the Hebrews were a very 
well-educated people, and right at the heart of their education was the Bible. And you look at Jesus. I'm working on a book right now with uh, Mark Perez, who is uh, the CEO of RTB and is a philosopher of, of science. And I, I have a chapter that's going to be on Jesus the Logician. Jesus was a master teacher. He was a sage. He uh, had uh, a, a breadth of knowledge. And again, I think that if you look in Western civilization, to be an educated person, Dave, to speak to your point, was to have a knowledge of the Bible. And, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that uh, Mortimer Adler says. It's the kind of thing that other leading educators say that uh, to be an educated person, you have to have, uh, in the West, you have to have an understanding of the Bible. Mm. That's exactly right. Well, let, let's talk a bit more here then uh, about these two books. And Again, one of the challenges that we run into is that it's possible to exaggerate one or to exaggerate another. It's it's also possible to diminish one and to or diminish another. Um I said last time, and I I say this uh carefully and and uh, with respect. But I, I think there probably is a tendency within the young earth uh, perspective uh, to emphasize scripture and uh, to, di to diminish the book of nature. I wonder in the evolutionary creation if it doesn't reverse, if there isn't an emphasis on the book of nature, maybe something less on scripture. Now, again, I I have no wish to to ridicule. I, I just want to make the point that these are these two books, and understanding how they work together is is interesting. I would make this observation. I, I think the natural theologian William Paley, and at some point I'd like to do a program on Paley and talk about some of his arguments for God, uh, because his his arguments from design were were very significant. His dates are 1743 to 1805. It's possible that Paley exaggerated general revelation. Uh, on the other hand, you have somebody in the 20th century, uh, the great biblical theologian. In fact, you know, um, some people would argue that the most influential theologian of the 20th century was arguably Karl Barth. Hmm. Uh, Barth's dates are 1886 to 1968. He was, again, from the, the Reformed tradition. I think he diminishes general revelation. And and again, it it is a balancing act. They are two, they are two different kinds of books. I mean, the, I mean, scripture, scripture comes in inspired words. It comes in inspired propositions. Um, it it is a literal book. The book of nature, it, it's like a repository of knowledge, but it has to be collected. It, it has to it has to be discovered, and then it has to be set forth as data and explained. 
So it it ha- there's another process to it. Um, now I my position would be that Scripture is the supreme authority. Uh, but I don't want to say that because a lot of people think by when you say that you're it's just Bible onlyism. Hmm. No, Scripture has supreme authority because of its propositional, inspirational, revelatory form. The book of nature has to be collected; it has to be analyzed. The, then we have to de- de- develop it into a theory and all of those kinds of things. It is possible to exaggerate general revelation. It's possible to diminish general revelation. And uh, I'm not saying it's always an easy thing to do. Um, Therefore, there are going to be people who are going to come along and say, I think Dr. Ross, for example, he's reading too much science into Scripture, or, you know, he's emphasizing too much the book of nature. Uh, but the reality is that's that is the challenge of understanding these two books. H- how do we understand them? Uh, do, do we put them side by side and and bring analysis to them? Uh, and and again, it, it's it's also possible. I, I think of people within the evolutionary creationist point of view. You know, they are not very happy with RTB's concordism. You know, the idea that that in scripture you would you would also have a concord, a a a correspondence with scientific ideas. I think the movement in theology in many respects is is to see Genesis less as scientific origin and more about theology. So what I'm saying here is this is an easy process and and it's going to be uh it's going to be challenging. Um Hugh has a new book that will be coming out that delves into this idea of the two books and and by the way I think this might be Hugh's most important book. And what I really appreciate is that Hugh has a lot of interaction with not only leading uh, theologians, but with also some other leading scientists. I think that this is going to be a a book that some people will uh, be put off by, but I think it may also... You know, my view is that the Creator and the Cosmos is Hugh Ross's most important book. That that's the book that hooked me. That's the book that I think he's in his field. He does what he does, but I think this new book has uh, a real opportunity to to influence people. And what was great about our conference is we had uh, theologians who came here uh, to the RTB campus and. Uh, we were able to have a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Now, um, divine revelation, of course, does not conflict because God is the author of both sources. And so, again, we're back to Dave's earlier point. All truth is God's truth. Um, I've mentioned before, and I'll, I'll mention it again. When I was a young Christian, I was raised in a Catholic family. I was baptized as a four-year-old. I was kind of acquainted with Catholicism. Um, my parents kind of fell away from their their Catholic commitment. They kind of went back to their evangelical roots that they had received 
growing up in the state of West Virginia. But I was kind of in nowhere's land at that point. And um, when I began taking my faith more seriously, um, I began attending an evangelical church. I left the Catholic church. By the way, for a time, I thought very seriously about being a Catholic priest. That was... uh, that was something I very seriously considered. Two people dissuaded me of that idea, Walter Martin and Joan, who became my wife. Uh, I I became very interested in in not being a priest uh, and having a life <laughs> having a life with my wife. Yeah. But um, I I remember going to school and uh, I I had a job at uh, Toys R Us. Um, uh, putting toys together. Boy, I don't, I don't know how I did that. But I remember one day in particular, I was out in the parking lot shagging carts. You know, people take their cart to the car and I had to line them all up like you do at a supermarket. And I remember, I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, uh, you know, at, at the university where I study philosophy, they never talk about faith. Hmm. And at my evangelical church, they never talk about reason. And I felt like I don't seem to fit either place because I'm a man of faith and reason. Fortunately, there was a professor. He, This was at a community college. He was the best teacher I ever had anywhere I've ever been. Uh, I've known a lot of elite educators. Uh, his name was Doug Wessel. He was a Lutheran, but when he taught his courses, you could never know what he believed. He just, he just, when he taught Nietzsche, you thought he believes in Nietzsche. If he taught Aristotle, he believes in Aristotle. If he, whatever he taught, you thought he believes it because he just give it everything he had. But I remember him, uh, I remember following him into his office and I, I shared with him about this faith and reason issue. He says, Ken, you need to go read St. Augustine. You need to go back to the Christian tradition, and you'll start to see that there have been a lot of people in the Christian tradition that are both people of faith and people of reason. And um, that really encouraged me because I, I wanted to know that I could study logic and that the laws of logic, the law of excluded middle, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, that in logic I could discover truth. That if I were to study mathematics, that I could study mathematical principles and it would bring me closer to the truth. Uh, this two books idea is very important to me. I don't think I would have decided to work at RTB, frankly, if I didn't believe in the two books revelation. Because it the, it was that that said, look, uh, I can work with these science scientists, and the two books kind of kind of grounds all of these things. So the idea of all truth is God's truth. That, that's very encouraging to me. I want I want to learn more. I want to read more. I want to study more. I want to get a little closer to the to to the God of truth. So the book of nature or general revelation, it's not one more section of the Bible. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the 67th book of the Bible. It's the two books together. Mm-hmm. They're they're different kind of books. 
Um, so rather than the book of nature being a, a distinct and different kind of book from scripture, but, you know, think about the book of nature. It's a repository of knowledge. I mean, I, I like these programs where people go out in nature and they have to survive and, you know, they have to catch their own food and make their own fire and, you know, how long they have to stay there. And it, what's funny is they go into a jungle. And it's like, well, you know, stay away from this bush. Because, you know, it, it'll, it'll, it'll give you an infection. But if you do get the infection, go over to this other bush and it'll cure it. And I'm thinking, wow, are they, you know, is it, are they in a pharmacy? What is it about the repository of knowledge? You know, nature's like a library. It, it, it has all of these kinds of things together and so uh, I would say the two books metaphor in and of itself doesn't commit one to a particular view of how the book of nature or the sciences and scripture should relate. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think it's it's a powerful idea, Joe and Dave. And I think that one of the reasons RTB has had such a meaningful influence in the life of many people is that this is right at the core of, 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 of what we do. And I write about it. I write about the two books in my book, Without a Doubt. And I write about it in my latest book, Christianity Cross-Examined. Wonderful. Uh, Ken, one final question from me, at least. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you you hold to the view that uh, special revelation is supreme. Uh, somebody who might not think as fondly of the two books view as we do at RTB might say it's for theological reasons that I hold uh, to my view. That is that uh, the, the book of scripture, special revelation, should always uh, guide us. That is, uh, we need to incorporate the noetic effects of the fall. Uh, so I wonder if you might comment on that. Well, let's let's mention the noetic effects. Noeo is a word that relates to the mind. So the question is that when we became sinners, I I personally believe in original sin. Not not all Christians do, but how how does sin affect your body? Well, in one way, you're going to die, but could sin have an effect upon your mind? Well, I think to some degree, yes. Not so much so that I can't count or I can't reason through the laws of logic, uh, because quite frankly, some of the great greatest philosophers and greatest scientists have been non-Christians. So it, it's not like sin affects their mind in terms of logic or mathematics, but where it really affects Joe when it comes to morality, when it comes to accountability— I think the noetic effects of the fall are, are not so much that we can't see God as much as we don't want to see God. Hmm. Now, in terms of kind of the final authority, um, sola scriptura is in some sense a bit of an unfortunate phrase, um, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, I think what's unfortunate is you, you think of Bible onlyism. So I don't need to, I, I don't need the creeds and I don't need reason and I don't need science. I've just got the Bible. 
Whereas I think the classical Christians, including the scientists like Galileo and others, they would see these are two books. They they are different kinds of books, but they're needed together. Uh, the book of nature can help us to maybe not misinterpret scripture. Uh, the book of nature cannot correct scripture, but the book of nature might hint to us, you know, um, quite frankly, the 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 medieval Catholic Church thought that the Earth was at the center uh, of the of the universe or the solar system, but that was really Aristotle's idea. That that wasn't really a biblical idea, but I, I think it is important to see them together. And and Joe, I would say this: I think that Scripture, the reason that it's supreme, is that it it comes fully in propositional form. The book of nature has to be unearthed. It has to be investigated. It has to then be placed in propositional form. Mm -hmm. And the Bible has an inspiration that the book of nature does not. But that doesn't mean we we reject them. And mm -hmm. you know, uh, could I could I say? And I'm sure people have heard me say this before. Uh, sometimes I run into Christians on social media and they say, oh, I don't want to read any of these great books that Ken Samples recommends. I just read the Bible. And I think, well, you know, if you read some of those great books, they'll not only, they'll not only teach you great truths, but they'll point you back to the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, there are a lot of authorities there's the authority of reason. There's the authority of church tradition. There's the authority of scripture. Um, but I find it unfortunate when I have evangelicals tell me, I don't want to read great books. I, I just I just read the Bible. And I think uh, I think that's a misunderstanding of sola scriptura. Yeah. All right. Very good. Good point. Uh, you can you uh, recommend your books again where you've written about this, Ken? Yes. You know, one of uh, one of my books, without a doubt, uh, it was published in 2004. I think that's probably been uh, my most influential book. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what the book sales are and all of that kind of thing. But I I, I think that book has probably been one of my most influential books. That has a, an entire chapter dedicated to uh, the two books, the book of nature, the book of scripture. Uh, and then in my, my latest book, Christianity Cross-Examined, I have a section there where I talk about the two books, its relationship both to theology and science. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. I've uh, put in a good word in the past for uh, without a doubt. I might just say again, I think it's an excellent layperson's systematic theology. Mm. All right. Very good. I like hearing that. That's yeah. not a real compliment. I appreciate that. Dude. Well, uh, let's hear from a couple more people, uh, Ken, who appreciated your book, without a doubt. Uh, here's, here's a note that's come into us. I took copies of your book, without a doubt, to Western Uganda and South Rwanda, wow. Benjamin Clifton. And then another comment, I bought a copy of your book, Without a Doubt, here in West Africa, Ghana, Carl Sean Desmond. So this book uh, has been getting around the world, Ken. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I, could, could, I, could I make a point? Um, uh, we, 
I am very grateful and very thankful. These these notes they they encourage me. Uh, Joe knows that writing is not easy. It is it's a challenging discipline, and I get many people helping. Um, I would say, for example, Joe Aguirre has been one of the most uh, influential people to, to me and to my writing. And I would say that that Dave Rogstad has also looked at all of my books. I usually, he's the sounding board. He'll, he's the person I'll go to. And if I get his thumbs up, then I'm I'm ready to move. And so when people thank me, I want them to appreciate my two colleagues here that I work with very closely and two very personal friends too, uh, that Joe and Dave, they're very much helpful to me in this process. And I, I thank both of you. Well, thank you for that. Uh, it's good, good to hear from these people. Let us know your comments and questions as you have been. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. And don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. All right. And again, those books, uh, Without a Doubt and uh, Christianity Cross-Examined. A couple other books, in case you have not read some of other some of Ken's other works, are Classic Christian Thinkers, God Among Sages, uh, and A World of Difference. Uh, those are just a few more. Uh, so keep uh, keep those minds busy as we all uh, have been doing here as, as part of Reasons to Believe. All right, that's going to wrap it up. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.